and sisters, the Lord be with you. A reading from the Holy Gospel according to John. On the evening of that first day of the week, when the doors were locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood in their midst and said to them, Peace be with you. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. The disciples rejoiced when they saw the Lord. And Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, so I send you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. Whose sins you forgive are forgiven them, and whose sins you retain are retained. Thomas, called Didymus, one of the twelve, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples said to him, We have seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see the mark of the nails in his hands, and put my finger into the nail marks, and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. Now a week later, his disciples were again inside, and Thomas was with them. Jesus came, although the doors were locked, and stood in their midst, And said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here and see my hands, and bring your hand and put it into my side, and do not be unbelieving, but believe. Thomas answered and said to him, My Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, Have you come to believe because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and have believed. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples that are not written in this book. But these are written that you may come to believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. And that through this belief, you may have life in his name. The Gospel of the Lord. Why are Silicon Valley billionaires starving themselves? That's what the writer Ruth Margolis asked in this recent edition of the news magazine called The Week. And in this article, she describes how Jack Dorsey, who's the founder and the CEO of Twitter and is one of the wealthiest people in our nation, very surprisingly and very publicly practices a very extreme form of self-denial that she said left her troubled and puzzled. For example, Dorsey eats only one meal a day during the week, and then on the weekends he completely fasts. He starts his day 
every day with an ice bath. And despite whatever the weather, he walks five miles from his home to his office and then home again at the end of the day. And he's one of these growing number of very highly successful individuals who've embraced this stoic lifestyle. And the the writer Margolis gives examples of these successful billionaires who are exhibiting very unbillionaire-like behavior. Some refuse to put on a winter coat, as they say, they see it as surrendering to the earth and learning just to accept things as they are. Others fast for weeks at a time. And she says that most of these individuals have adopted these practices as a a way of, of thriving in these extremely high stress environments that they live in, or perhaps a little bit more accurately, environments that they've helped create. And it was a it was fascinating article, not only to, to hear of these high power executives, these entrepreneurs incorporating monkish behaviors into their competitive, driven, ambitious lives, but also because the author of the article was so unmoved and so critical about it. And she was particularly frustrated at Jack Dorsey as she went through the list of all that is wrong with Twitter, all that's like been unleashed on the world, and probably a lot of it we would agree with. And she likened all these behaviors as a self-imposed penance for having created something that has unleashed pretty bad things on the world. And she argued that this lifestyle is almost like a a self-absolution where the billionaire could eventually say, yeah, I might have invented Twitter, but I walk to work, and I vacation at a spiritual retreat that looks like a refugee camp. And she observes that this philosophy has adopted a lot of detractors to it, and very snarkily ends her article, if the negativity gets too much for him, at least he can come home and relax in a nice cold bath. Whatever Jack Dorsey and these other guys' stated reasons for living this stoic lifestyle, one thing kind of stood out to me, though, because some reason... These people who seem to have everything they could ever want in the world. Money, power, fame, influence. Have on some level come to recognize how limited those things are. Whether it was fear and stress and anxiety. Or whether it was loneliness or self-doubt or some lack of trust. Whatever it was, something obviously disturbed them so much that they realized that this money... And this power and this fame and this influence didn't fulfill every desire in their hearts or souls. It didn't relieve whatever it was that was troubling them. And whether it's a a longing for absolute control and order in their lives, or if this author is correct that it's an attempt to make up for something they've done that they feel some level of guilt about, their lifestyles are very surprising. And you can't help but wonder, what is it that they're looking for. What are you looking for? In the Gospel of John, that is the question, the question that frames Jesus' call to the disciples. The first disciples, after hearing sermons of repentance from John the Baptist and recognizing that there was something lacking in their world, there was something lacking in their lives, they listened to John point to Jesus as the Son of God. And they start following Jesus, and they're imagining him as the Messiah. He's the one who's to come. He's the one who's going to set everything right in the world. And he immediately asks them, what are you looking for? 
If you look in the scriptures, they don't really ever give him an answer. They actually defect, deflect it and ask him a question. Where are you staying? And Jesus just invites them to come and to see. And they do. And they follow him. But had they answered, they probably wouldn't have been different from any other human being with very human desires. At some level, they were also looking for money or power or influence or fame. They were looking for the Messiah to come, this new king that's going to restore Israel and give them all those things. If they were honest, they were also aware of their their family history. They recognized that their ancestors hadn't always been faithful to the covenant that God had made with them. So that's why there was that call for repentance that John was talking about and that need for forgiveness as well. But more than likely, they kind of saw those as things that they kind of had to get through so they could get to the things that they really wanted. Even though Jesus pointedly tells them and he keeps trying to shift their expectations and understandings of what the Messiahship would be as he spends his time with them. And he explicitly tells them what God truly wanted his kingdom to be like. And whether they misunderstood him or they were having selective hearing, or maybe they just thought, if they keep just nodding their heads as Jesus talked about those things, eventually we'll get back to these earthly human desires that are as tempting today as they must have been back then. Because how else do you explain? Jesus tells them exactly what will happen to him. He lays it out in graphic detail. The Son of Man will be handed over to men and they will kill him. And after his death, he will rise. And in the next instant, Jesus realizes that as he was saying this, they were arguing among themselves who's the greatest. It's important for us to kind of keep that in mind as we think about tonight's gospel, because it helps to put into context what type of emotional roller coaster they had all been on through Holy Week. Palm Sunday, they're imagining this is the moment. They're screaming Hosanna, they're welcoming Jesus. It's finally arrived, it's finally going to happen. And days later, the apostles had just seen Jesus betrayed by one of their own, Judas. And is denied by Peter, the one Jesus had called the rock he was going to build his church on. And he's basically abandoned by the rest of them. So their dreams and their, their plans are gone. Their hopes have evaporated. And so that's where the gospel starts tonight. They begin in that locked upper room once again. It's a place that's filled with fear and anger and disappointment at each other and at themselves. It's a place of grief and sadness. And it's right into that space that Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, makes his first appearance to the disciples. He steps into that locked upper room and begins to unlock their hearts and minds and begins to impart once again his vision, this new way that they could finally comprehend and understand his message and his teaching and what his kingdom is all about. And it all starts to make sense that we are his followers. We experience the power of his life right here and now when we follow his radical call of selfless, sacrificial love. When we try to receive and to imitate his offering of this unfathomable gift of forgiveness and mercy. That's how Easter changes the entire trajectory of their lives. That's how we find Jesus answers his own question, what are you looking for, with his answer. 
peace. Peace is what we ultimately desire and long for in every one of our hearts. Not the peace that is simply the absence of conflict, but Jesus' definition of it, which is fullness of life. A fullness that's not diminished by someone else flourishing, but it's complemented by that. A fullness that's not defined by how much we possess, but by how much we give. We probably find ourselves relating more to Thomas than we care to admit. The cruelty of the world, the the failures, the disappointments, the sins, those are all too real for us. And that causes us to pause and to doubt this good news. And we imagine that if we could only get a fraction of the money and the power and the fame and the influence that the most successful in the world have, that then we would find that satisfaction. We would find that comfort and that peace that we desire. And that's one reason why Easter is celebrated anew each and every year. The Lord is constantly trying to break into the locked rooms of our world, the closed minds and hearts that have us locked in on those pursuits. Jesus speaks to us as He did to Thomas, gently showing us the lengths and the depths that he's gone to for us. And his wounds dying to the things of this world and unlocking for us the way, the truth, and the life to ultimate fulfillment. As he says, do not be unbelieving, but believe. Thomas and the rest of them in that upper room were were awestruck and were transformed. And they found more than they could have ever have imagined, was with them the entire time that they had followed Jesus. And now they would go spending and offering their lives in testimony to that fact, that Jesus was indeed the Christ, the Son of God. They found their answer. But what are we still looking for? If we look to Jesus as our Lord and God, if we listen to him calling us to follow him now, we too can find more than we could ever have imagined the peace that we and the world so desperately desires will be ours.